you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the real Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the Word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Okay, the theme of 1 John, the theme of 1 John, true fellowship with God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. The key verse is 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guess, not wonder. Know that you have eternal life. Now, as you know, with each book, we do an introduction. If you have a study Bible, it's much like it's written in the front of your study Bible. Uh, for each book, there's usually an introduction. This is just one that was taken out of the preacher's outline sermon Bible. And it says that the author was John. The author was John. It's never mentioned who wrote it, but through church history, John has been credited and very affirmatively credited with writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So he is the author. Polycarp bears witness to this, who was a protege, was a disciple of John, who was, was a follower of John in his teachings. The date was probably 85 to 90 A.D., we think it was before 95 A.D. because Domitian, uh, a Roman ruler, started persecuting the church, and it wasn't mentioned in 1 John. So we believe it was before that, around 85 to 90 A.D. The important thing here, it's, a, it's written not to a person or to a group of people, but written to the church globally. It's written to the church globally. 2 and 3 John are written to individuals, but 1 John is written to the church corporately. Now, the purpose is this, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. John also wrote to defend the faith and to strengthen the church against the false teachers. So number two, to defend against false teaching. And this is common through all of the, all of the epistles. Peter addressed the false teachers. James addressed false teachers. Jude addressed false teachers. They're constantly addressing false teachers. It's something that comes in constantly. John will particularly deal with the Gnostics, which I'll expand on in just a moment. And then the person that did the commentary on the Preacher's Outline Sermon Bible noted this and, and said, really emphasized that you need to know this. And please hear. He says this, There are teeming millions and millions and have been since Christ who believe that they are safe and acceptable to God because they've been baptized, because they go to church, or because they practice the rituals of the church. Okay, they think they're safe, and they worship there, but they live like the world. They eat, they drink, they take the pleasures of the world, they hoard, they curse, they're immoral, and they think that they're okay. Uh, what they do with their bodies doesn't matter, as long as I'm better than my next-door neighbor. Why, I'm much better than my next-door neighbor, so I must be okay. No, that is false. John is going to address that very specifically, very specifically. And again, it's a, it's, a God, it's a message to the church in general, to the church in general. Now, 1 John is an epistle of assurance. 
And he says, we know, we know, and he uses it 17 times in the book of 1 John. We know, we know, we know. And it's also written, 1 John is an epistle of tests, of test. It was written to give the believers test after test by which they could prove whether or not the person knows God or not. Now hear this. This is an introspection test. This isn't a test for you to judge everyone around you. Oh, you're not in. Oh, you're not in. Oh, no, this is introspection. You look within yourself, okay? So, uh, 1 John is, is, is personal, and its emphasis is personal righteousness, purity, love, knowledge, and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Loyalty to Jesus Christ. 1 John is written that you may know that you have eternal life, but, oh, the Gospel of John, same writer, probably written about the same time. I mean, there's a feeling that all four of these books are written around the same time and put in the circulation. The Gospel says this, is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. It was written to people to believe and come to Christ, the Gospel, but, oh, the first John was written to those who think they believe and may not be in the body of Christ. So there are two different groups with two different directions here. Now, Gnosticism, we're going to talk about that. If we're going to know what, what 1 John is really talking about, we must know about Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is defined this way. It means knowledge. Gnostics is knowledge. Gnosos is knowledge. Knowledge. It means knowledge, and it, and it means secret knowledge. Only the enlightened know. We're the enlightened group. We're the ones that have secret, intimate knowledge. Uh, that has been a problem from the inception of the church all the way to today, where people have secret insights, usually very much more than the Word of God. We're getting these vibes from different places, okay? So, Gnosticism, they believe that secret mystical knowledge was higher than Scripture. Danger, 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 okay? And only the enlightened have real, true knowledge. And I'm telling you, this has been all through history, and it is right into today, right into today. So to understand the key points that John addresses in the epistle, you must understand what Gnosticism is. Now, what I'm going to explain to you, hopefully you'll keep this little piece with you. If you have a handout, you'll keep it with you through this entire teaching on 1 John. Because it says, what do the Gnostics believe? Well, Gnostics believe that the spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. That man's body, which is matter, is evil. Now, your body is neutral. Your body is simply carrying out the dictates of your mind, okay? But Gnosticism believes, oh, no, the body is evil. Salvation, number two, salvation is escape from the body, achieved not by faith in Christ. Let that just kind of ring your bell also. But with special knowledge. Gnostics always go beyond what is written. Oh, we can take this, but there's more to it than this. That's what Gnosticism is. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 gives us a very strong warning. Not to think beyond what is written. Deuteronomy 4, 2 says this. You shall not add to the word which I command you today, nor take from it. This is God's revelation to humanity. This we know to be true. Things that are coming from the outside, that people say, I've got a word, I've got a revelation, 
I've got this, I got that. We don't know exactly if that's true or not. People can have dreams, people can have visions and that sort of thing. But we know that sometimes when you have dreams and visions, they're just your dreams and your visions. Sometimes they could be from God. And I would say rarely they're from God. Most of the time we have, get information from, about God through his word. Through his word. But I can't exclude the other, other venues. And so, since the body was considered evil, two, thing, two things that will happen if you're a Gnostic. Because the body is considered evil, you'll treat it harshly. And those are the people that you see beating themselves. Those are the people you see crucifying themselves. Like in the Philippines over Easter, you'll see several people crucifying themselves. These are the people that cut themselves. These are the people that hurt themselves. The body must be, be submitted. It must submit, and it must be beaten down. The other one, which I would suggest is much more popular, is this. Cast off all restraint of the body. Since it doesn't matter. Your body doesn't matter. Since it doesn't matter, just cast off all restraint. You can do what you want to do. Immorality is permissible. Eat, drink, and be merry attitude, and do whatever you want. Now, which of these do you think would be the most popular in America? Number two, I can tell you that. Yes, that would be the most popular. I can do whatever I want with my body. The spirit is separate. These views are unbiblical. Then this last thing I want to share with you. Christ's true humanity was denied in two ways. The Gnostics believe this. Christ only seemed to have a body. That's called docetism. Docetism means to seem or appear as. And others believe the divine Christ joined the man Jesus at his baptism and left him before he died. This is called Serinthianism. After its spokesman, Cernius, both these views are false. Both these views are unbiblical. Okay? Now let me tell you a little bit about Serinthius. Serinthius taught that Jesus was not born of a virgin. Now that's very common today. All world religions would believe this outside of Christianity. He's not born of a virgin. He was the natural son of Joseph and Mary. Most people believe that he was a good, righteous man. Serinthius believed this. At his baptism, this is strange, the Christ descended on him, on the Christ, the Christ spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. At least I got that part of the scripture right. And from the supreme, and from the supreme ruler. Jesus then proclaimed the unknown father and performed miracles. At last, Christ departed from Jesus, and the human Jesus suffered, died, and rose again, while the Christ remained untouched. See, separation of the body and the spirit. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is deity, he is God incarnate, and the Son of Man, that he was fully human, fully human, fully God. Something John is going to uh, address constantly with the Gnostics, constantly with the Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism, again, has been a problem in Christianity since its inception and extends to today. Special knowledge, new revelation is very, very popular now, especially within the New Apostolic Reformation where everybody's getting all kinds of revelations and dreams and words from God. And, it, and these revelations oftentimes trump Scripture uh, this is a reason that John's emphasis is true belief is demonstrated by obeying God's command as, as given in the word of God, okay, and written in his word, not an emphasis on special knowledge that the Gnostics kept pumping in and pumping in and pumping in, say this supplants or this replaces scripture. We have special knowledge from God. 
And he's going to address this over and over. So some key verses, some key verses to remember in the book of John. 1 John 1.9. Now, most people are familiar with this. If this is not something you are familiar with as a Christian, you must become familiar with it. This is a key verse, okay? If we confess our sins, why? Each one of us is going to falter. Each one of us will fail on this walk. Each one of us will need to confess our sins. And what does confess mean? Agree with God that it was wrong. You're not making it up. You're not making an excuse. My mama made me this way. My daddy made me this way. Oh, all these guys, they made me do it. No, I confess my sins. I own my sins. And he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all, all unrighteousness. There is a way back to God. Remember, sin breaks fellowship with God. You ever feel that? Distance from God because you've sinned. There's a barrier there. It breaks fellowship. It doesn't break relationship. See, when you're in the family of God, you're in the family of God. But it breaks fellowship. So if we confess, it reignites the fellowship. That is what we want. 1 John 3, 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Now, John is going to repeat this, this theme over and over and over. Remember that this is for the body is nothing crowd, the do what I want with my body crowd, okay? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or, oh, watch this, known him. Continual, habitual, unconfessed sin that I'm making excuses for, he's saying, you don't know the master. Very convicting. Habitual, unconfessed, justified sin, saying, I was born that way, I can't help it. That is not true. Examine yourself. 1 John 4, 4, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Well, who's the them? Those are the Gnostics that he's specifically talking about here. But it's also talking about our triunity of evil, which the Gnostics were a part of. The world, the flesh, and the devil. You, dear children, have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, who is in you? The spirit of the living God is in you. And he resides in you. He is greater than any force in this world, okay? And remember, Satan is the spirit of the age. It's the zeitgeist of the age, the false spirit of this age. In 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Folks, this is assurance. This is assurance that you know that you have eternal life. Now, before we get into the scripture, allow me to ask you a question. Now, one man asked this question, and he wrote it this way. What is Christianity? You'd probably get a wide range of answers. Some look at it as a moral system. Some look at it as a religious organization. Some people even think Christianity is evil and repressive because it's against women. It's against all other world religions. No, Christianity is for humanity and the truth of humanity that all can be saved and that all other roads are false roads, are deceptive roads, okay? So some might even say that Christianity is the one true religion. There's a wide range of answers. Then there would be the question, what do you think of Jesus? 
Now, some people say, and many people say this, he's a great religious teacher. He was a good man. Jesus was a good man. He did good things. He was the founder of Christianity, and some correctly say he was the Son of God, not knowing what they mean when they say he's the Son of God. And we know that he is God incarnate. He's the Son of God. He is God in flesh form. Now, hear this. It's no accident that there is such a confusion in the essence of true Christianity and Jesus Christ. These are foundational. We build our lives on who Christ is, what Christianity is based on. These are foundational. And if your foundation is shaky, it doesn't matter how beautiful your building looks if it's on a shaky foundation. You've got a shaky building. And remember, Satan has tried to confuse people about Christianity and Jesus Christ from the beginning. So a question for all, for everyone in earshot of this, whoever hears this into the future, who is the real Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? And are you following the real Jesus? John will not mince words in 1 John. John, 1 John is not something that's going to be, that it'll be expounded in the seeker-friendly church. It will not, it'll be ignored because this is very convicting. It has many things that really indicate whether you're truly saved or not. Whether you're truly saved or not. He'll tell you what true Christianity is. Whether you're truly part of the family of God or not. Now, we're going to start out in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates the word to our minds. And Father, I ask you today to clear our heads, clear our minds, clear our thoughts, soften our hearts, help us to get away from all preconceived ideas of who you are, and help us to learn today, through your Spirit, the real Jesus. Help us to hear you today, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts things that we do not know and teach us things that we must know. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verse 1 and 2, the real Jesus became a man. Again, the Gnostics believed it was spiritual. It was spirit, that, that it was just spirit. He wasn't a man. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus Christ. The life was manifested or made known, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which is Christ, which was with the Father, he was with the Father, two different entities, Jesus was with the Father, and was manifested to us or made known to us that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. So the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth as a man at his incarnation. God becomes a man, the Son of Man. And that when he says, from the beginning, I want you to realize, in this text that we're talking about here, which I'll mention a little bit later, this beginning is the beginning that Jesus had with the apostles. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus always, always, always existed. Jesus always existed. He is not a created being. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, as some oneness Pentecostals believe. 
Jesus is not Michael the archangel with Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jesus is not the spirit brother of Lucifer as Mormons believe. And Jesus is not simply a prophet as second to Muhammad as Islam believes. And Jesus is not simply an enlightened teacher that many, many world religions believe. No, he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And that is what he is emphasizing over and over. What I would like you to do with me is to turn to John the Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. John, in his Gospel, tells us who Jesus is. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now this, in the beginning, is talking about eternity past. Before time was, okay? In the beginning was the, was the word, the Logos. The Logos is this, the thought, reason, wisdom, uh, divine power, the ultimate reason, God. The Logos, all-knowing, the word. And the word was with God, and what was the word? The word was God. Now, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you'll have in there the only translation of the word in the world, an absolute abomination to the Greek. They put the article, a God. And that makes them one of many gods. That is wrong. That is wrong. Just so you know, that was just, a, just an FYI. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus was in the beginning with God. He's with God in the beginning. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is the creative part of all of creation. What does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe the whole triunity of God was involved in the beginning, but we know that Jesus is the creator. Make no mistake on who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or held together. We've used this verse several times in the last few weeks. Jesus Christ is the creator of everything that you see, and he is the one that holds everything together that you see. Okay? So you have to understand that. In him was life. Only God gives life. What does it say in Genesis 2-7? He breathed the ruach, the spirit of God, and they became living, living beings. In him was life. Only God gives life. This is Jesus. And the life was the light of men. The light of God came into the world with Jesus Christ. The true light that gives life to every man came into the world. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And this darkness has this, this thought to it. It is a prevailing idea of unhappiness and ruin. That is the world in darkness separated from the light, separated from God. There's little spurts of trying to feel good and make yourself feel good in this world, but it is all, everyone born into this world is born into the kingdom of darkness and must be extracted from the kingdom of darkness. And the only way to do that 
No other world religion. It is through Jesus Christ. Why do we believe that? Because Jesus said so. More on that in a few moments. In a few moments. So, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In 1.14, just go to verse 14, you will see this more clearly. And the Word became flesh. Who became flesh? The Word. Who is the Word? Jesus is the Word. And dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. What's he talking about? We beheld his glory. Peter, James, and John, who wrote this, saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and his glory was exposed. I'll more on that in just a second. As beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John knew the real Jesus. John knew that Jesus was the Son of God that he was not merely a man. He was the Son of God. Matthew tells us, Matthew tells us about the real Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, we read these words about the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew writes this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, took them on a high mountain. And on the high mountain, he was transfigured before them. And the word is metamorpho. It is a change, a change of condition from earthly to heavenly. What Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration is he opened up his flesh and he exposed who he really was. The glory of God shone forth. And this is an amazing moment. reason I know it's an amazing moment, you got Moses there, Elijah there, who, by the way, Peter, James, and John recognize. Gives us an idea when we get to heaven, we're going to recognize people, okay? They recognize them. Also, there's no soul sleep. They're right there. These, these two guys have already passed. They've gone on. Now, Elijah was translated, but they, they have gone on. They're with us, okay? And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared. So what does Peter do? Well, Peter does what Peter normally does. Type A plus personality starts talking. Starts talking. Oh, Lord, this is the kingdom. Shall we set up booths today? Shall we put up tabernacles today? And while he is still speaking and just regurgitating information in the, in the, in the, in the excitement of the moment, because he thinks this is the kingdom. Man, Messiah is here. This is going to be established right now. And God interrupts him in verse 5. Pick it up there. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, the Shekinah of God, the glory of God. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Father speaks to Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved son. And when the disciples heard it, what did they do? Fell on their faces, were greatly afraid. They're in a panic attack. And what happens the next moment? Jesus touches them and says, fear not. Fear not. The shepherd touches them. Do not be afraid. And then when they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one, only Jesus. Oh, John knew the real Jesus. Matthew knew the real Jesus. He knew this account of Peter, James, and John. The real Jesus. These guys know the real Jesus. The important thing is that we know the real Jesus. Now, this one who is preexistent, Jesus, this one who is eternal, who became a mere man, in the beginning, speaking to the apostles from the time the apostles saw him for the rest of their lives, that's their beginning. It doesn't go all the way back to the beginning. But hear this. To counter the Gnostic, watch what John says. They 
heard him. They heard all of Jesus' teaching while he was physically with them. Not just the Spirit, he was physically with them. John, in his gospel, expands on the things that Jesus did. And notice what he says in John's gospel, John 21, 25. And there were also many other things. See, we're just getting a snapshot of what Jesus did. And we read the gospels, and we read the epistles, and they talk about Jesus. We're getting a little snapshot of it. There are also many things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And 60 years later, these memories are indelibly etched in John's memory banks. We have seen him with our eyes. We looked upon him. Our hands have handled him. He's telling these Gnostics he is there in the flesh and he is real. He is the real Jesus. They saw, what did they see? Well, they saw Jesus do miracles. And if you read the book of John, the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. There are seven signs. He turns water into wine, heals the nobleman's son by a word from a distance, heals the paralytic, feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, and then walks on water, heals a blind man from birth, and raises Lazarus from the dead. These guys saw the real Jesus. They also saw Jesus get tired, hungry, and he needed to get alone with who? Father. He needed to be recharged. Is that, is that a word for us? That we might need to get alone with Father? You bet it is. They saw him in Gethsemane just before the cross when he's crying out and he's sweating drops of blood. If there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Another way to redeem mankind, but oh, not my will, but your will. And he prayed there. He was distressed. They saw that Peter, James, and John, they were the inner circle. They witnessed this. And they saw they were sleeping, but they were privy to it. They saw him weep over Lazarus' death in John 11.35 as a result of sin. And they saw him weep over Jerusalem in the triumphal entry in Luke 19.41 when he's weeping over the over the nation of Israel, rejecting him and knowing what's going to happen to them. He weeps over the consequences of sin. And I want to suggest to you, when it says, we've seen him with our eyes, looked upon him, our hands have handled him. Can you imagine this? How often Jesus must have embraced them. Jesus must have put an arm around them and encouraged them. Oh, Jesus was warm and friendly and kind. That is our Jesus. And the Gnostics were saying he wasn't flesh. And John was saying, we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses. In verse 2, he says, we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us, made known to us. I want you to think about something. Think about this. While Jesus was with them, the disciples did not know exactly who Jesus really was. He had to constantly say, did you not know? Have you not seen? Did you not hear? Did you not read? That sort of thing. They didn't know. And hours before the cross, hours before the cross, they still didn't have it down. John writes this about Thomas in John 14, 5. Thomas said to Jesus, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus says these wonderful, wonderful words that give assurance to every Christian all over the world, 
even the North Korean Christians that are meeting in a boat, a rowboat, taking the hidden word of God into the middle of a lake to read these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. Jesus said, I'm exclusive. It is only through me that you can get to the Father. Nobody else can die for the sins of the world. It has to be God, the Lamb of God who takes away all the sins of the world. It has to be a perfect sacrifice. No human is perfect. No human could do it. And then Philip chimes in in 14.8, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus kind of looks at Philip and goes, Have I been with you so long, yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. How about this one? I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee recorded in Mark 4.35-31. through 31. And these guys in the boat, who most of them are fishermen, who have been on the Sea of Galilee, have experienced storms, have this experience. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowds behind them, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and there were also other boats. So you have a bunch of boats going to the other side, getting away from the crowd. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. They're sinking. This is a sinking ship. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, now watch the word here, teacher, not master, not Lord. They, had, they don't know who he is, really. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Not a ripple, not a twinge. From a storm to calm. Watch the disciples. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They did not really know who Jesus was. By the time it was all over, at the crucifixion, they all ran, thinking it was a defeat. At his resurrection, they all were, thought it was strange. Is it really him? Even Thomas, at the second time in the, in the, in the, upper, in, in the room where they were hiding, touch my hand, put your hand in my side. It's me. It's me, Thomas. But on Pentecost, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, there was no doubters then. There was no doubters. How do we know? Because all of them died most violently, except for John. And they tried to boil him. And they ostracized him to Patmos. The real Jesus became a man. He lived like a man. He ate like a man. He spoke like a man. He grieved like a man. He died like a man. And he rose from the dead as God. He conquered death, only something God could do. This is the real Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, for real. Verse 3 and 4. The real Jesus we declare to you. That's our job. We know the real Jesus, and we are to declare it to people. Tell them the story of Jesus. Tell them the story of his love. The world must know this story, and he gives us this responsibility. Verse 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you. That's our job. 
that you also may have fellowship, O koinonia, with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, with the Godhead. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Polero. It's the same word as being filled with this Holy Spirit, cram full, overflowing. That is the true Christian life. Joy unspeakable, full of glory. The end of all who believe is fellowship, koinonia. God is building a family, and he wants you in his family. He invites you into his family, and all you have to do is believe in his son to be part of his family. But if you reject his son, you are rejecting the precious son of God that God, the Father has given to this world to die for the sins of the world, and you have no hope. You have no hope. You have all the hope in the world with Jesus, and without him you have no hope. Come to Jesus. God is building a family. And when a person believes and receives Christ as Savior, we call that, or actually Scripture calls that being born again. A new birth. Why? Because everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins. Must be born again. Hear what John says. He, this born again is a child. It's called a technon. T-E-K-N-O-N. That would be the Greek word. And the word simply means birthed. Birthed into God's family. John 1.12 says this. Yet all who receive him, to those who believe, put their trust in him, commit their lives to him, believe in his name, he, he gives the right to become children of God, a technon of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, when a person is born again, John 3, 7, he becomes a birthed, a new birth child of God, a technon, a technon. It doesn't stop there. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. It doesn't stop there. God's goal is for you to become a mature son or a mature daughter. Remember 2 Peter 3, 18? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a command. That is an imperative. That is not an option. Okay? So he wants us to become a mature son called a huios. That would be the Greek word for a mature son having the characteristics of the Father. So what we want to do is look less like us and more like our Father. That's the whole goal. That's why you're here. You are here to spread the gospel. You're here to grow up and to look less like a technon and more like a huios, taking on the characteristics of father. Maturing. Maturing. That's the goal. So our job is to declare to everyone, God wants you to be part of his family, to have fellowship with him, to be born again. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. Every human born into the world, is born into the kingdom of darkness. Their spirits are dead. And it's the reason that we say you must be born again, because God has to give you life. And that life comes from believing in his son. There is no other way. No other way. He wants you to have fellowship with him, to be born again, and to grow and be a mature follower of Jesus. Verse 4 says this. Now, the mature will live out verse 4. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. And again, palero, overflowing. And, and, and this, this joy is cheerful heart, a cheerful behavior, a cheerful demeanor. 
then this joy is applicable. Now hear this. It's applicable to mature believers in the process of growth. No growth, no joy. If you're stagnant, if you're drifting, if you're in and out of your faith with Christ and you're in and out, no joy. No joy. This is for growing Christians. Now remember why Jesus came. He came so people would believe and receive the gift of salvation be born again. He came to destroy the works of the devil in John 3.8, or 1 John 3.8. He, is, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. A bu- great life in John 10.10. 10. He came that the joy may remain in your, and your joy may be full in John 15.11. He came to change the destiny of everyone who would believe in him. Now, if you've checked out, check in. Because this is what you want to hear this. Please. Jesus came to change you. Take you out of darkness into light. Now, that's the first thing. If one becomes born again, that's a great thing. But it's just the beginning. You're a technon, remember. And a technon is much like a teenager and doesn't mature. Now, it is awful to see someone 20, 30, 40, 60, 80, 90-year-old technon, teenager. Your joy will not be full. What do teens want? What do technons want? They want the next new exciting thing. They're looking for something over here. They're looking for something exciting over here. They're teenagers. That's what you do. You're looking for this great next, next move of something. Uh, the, the, their happiness is, is in the moment. And, they, and those technons will not experience the true joy. And tell me if this is not true in teenagers' life or in immature Christians' life. Upheavals are common. Emotional upheavals are common. Your whole life is situationally dependent. If everything is cheerful and great and wonderful, and I got an A on the test, and I get to go to the prom with the prom queen, oh, my life is great. But if I got a big pimple on my nose, and I ask her to go out, and she says, no, I don't like that big old pimple. Your life is crummy, okay? Situationally dependent. No joy for you. No joy for you. Conversely, if you have engaged with God in the process of becoming mature, and it is an engagement, sanctification is the Spirit of God working in concert with you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You can't grow by yourself. You must have the power of the Holy Spirit helping you grow. But we must engage with God in that growth process. Important concept. So, when we submit ourselves to the Spirit, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're walking with the Holy Spirit, a huios is what we are. Mature, settled. Isn't that something? Mature and settled. And we can experience the true joy of the Lord independent, independent of conditions, not dependent on conditions of life. The truth is this. I don't care how mature you think you are. Listen to this truth. No matter how mature you are, regression will occur, and we will act as a technon. We will act as a teenager, okay? Recognize it. Move on. Recognize it for what? Move on. And again, no matter how fully mature you think you are, we are a work in progress, and it will not, we won't be fully mature until we get to heaven. 
Okay, that's when we're fully victorious when we're glorified. Here it's going to be a struggle. But I will submit to you, the more you submit to God, the less you're going to regress into teenagedom. And that is the truth. Our job is to declare the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus to everyone. Our commission was the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 and through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The real Jesus, we declare to you. Conclusion, the real Jesus. Stephen Cole, who I get some information from, I love his closing here. He says this, many people believe in Jesus of their own imagination and have an emotional experience, and they call that being born again. But when their problems are not magically solved or they go through difficult trials, they conclude that Jesus didn't work. He didn't work for me. And they go back to the world. They go back to the pigsty. They go back to the slop. The problem is they didn't believe in Jesus revealed by the apostles in the New Testament. Their experience was not that of true fellowship with God and with others who know God. And so any witness about their supposed conversion is lost when they abandon the faith. It is likely they were never experienced true Christianity. True Christianity is essentially Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures, experienced in new life and fellowship, and proclaimed with joy. Make sure you have the real deal. John knew the real Jesus. Paul knew the real Jesus. Peter knew the real Jesus, and hopefully you know the real Jesus, and more importantly, that Jesus knows you. A lot of people say, I know Jesus. I know him. I know him. He gives me everything I want. Make sure you have the real deal and that Jesus knows you. The real Jesus we present to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. Thank you for First John. John does not equivocate on who is in the faith. John just lays it right out there, and you have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. So, Lord, I pray that each one of us, our hearts will be soft, our minds will be clear, our spirits will be open, and that we will receive the truth of your word into our beings today. And if someone here, Lord, has not been born again, if someone here has not said yes to the Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I receive you as my Savior. I pray that today will be the day when they say, yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. I believe that you died in my place. And if you do that in your chair right where you're at, you will be saved. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe you died for me. I received the gift of salvation. I want to be in your family. I receive you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I pray that it happens today to someone in this crowd. Thank you for this time to study your word, the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.